So we are, God willing, going to finish up Daniel tonight. On the screen in back of me, I've got a list of the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kings, along with the chapter and verse in Daniel that they're mentioned in. And what I've done is I've taken Daniel chapter 11, put it into a Word document, and then where it says the king of X and Y, I have put their names in. If anybody wants that document, I'd be happy to email it to you. It makes it a little easier to figure out who's doing what. I call this section the soap opera because it's exactly what it is. As I've said to you before, the sequence of events so closely matches the historical events from the death of Alexander until the death of Antiochus Epiphanes that modern Bible scholars say that it was written at the time of the Maccabees and it was a Jewish propaganda document to lend an air of prophetic inevitability to the Maccabean rebellion. You all know the story. Alexander the Great is the third of the empires that's mentioned in the book of Daniel. Remember we have four empires that are mentioned and they're mentioned three times. The first time is when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of the statue with the multiple medals. Then the next time it's mentioned is when Daniel has his vision and we have the four beasts and you correlate the four beasts with the medals in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And then in Daniel 8, you have an explanation of the Greeks and the Persians, where you have the ram and the goat. So the goat is Alexander the Great, and he basically conquers the entire Mediterranean basin, essentially from Greece eastward all the way to India and all the way down to Egypt. He, of course, dies. He leaves one son who is an inconvenience, and one of his generals kills the son and, and his wife. So Alexander has no heirs because his son is assassinated. So he leaves his empire to his four senior generals, and they divide the empire up into four chunks. Cassandra and Menelaus are the two that have between them Greece and Turkey. Then Seleucus has Syria all the way over to India, and Ptolemy has Egypt. That's sort of the, the breakdown. For prophetic purposes, the Bible is really only interested in Seleucus and Ptolemy. So you have Seleucus has got Syria, which is north of Israel, and Ptolemy has Egypt, which is south of Syria. So this chapter 11 is the competition that happens over a couple of hundred years between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies over several generations. And of course, it's all with respect to what's going on in Israel, because Israel is the battleground or the, or the link between the two kingdoms. Actually, we have to back up, because this is part of an ongoing conversation. Daniel, you remember we talked about last time, has been fasting for 21 days. Gabriel comes to make an announcement and explain to him what's going on. So this conversation is Gabriel. 
So I'm actually going to back up and pick it up at Daniel 10:18, so that you get the flavor of the conversation. So, 10:18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So the reason it took Gabriel 21 days to get to Daniel is because he had been resisted by the prince of Persia, which is an angelic or demonic being, depending on whether you think he's good or bad. And the prince of Greece, which is also an angelic or demonic being, is going to follow on after he leaves. So now this is Gabriel continuing to speak in chapter 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. So Xerxes then goes against the Greeks, and he is stopped at the Battle of Thermopylae. And ever thereafter, there is bad blood between the Greeks and the Persians. So when Alexander comes to power in Macedonia, one of the first things he does is he goes after the Persians. Okay, and that's what this is talking about. And Alexander is the mighty king, who, in verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now, this is the fourth time in this book that this same story has been told. Verse 4, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom should be plucked up and go to others beside these. And this is what I was told at the beginning. Alexander dies, leaving one son. One of his generals kills Alexander's son and Alexander's wife, so that they then divide the Greek empire among the four generals. I am now down to verse 5 in chapter 11. Then the king of the south, that's Ptolemy I, who was called Soter, and he ruled between 303 and 285 BC. So then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. This prince is Seleucus I, called Nicator, and he rules between 311 and 281. And what happened is, Seleucus got run out of Syria and India by one of Alexander's other generals, not one of the four. He takes refuge with Ptolemy in Egypt until he can get his act together, and then he gets his act together and goes back up and retakes Syria and Persia all the way over to India. So this one of his princes who shall be stronger is Seleucus I, Nicador. And his authority shall be a great authority. In other words, he will wind up with all the territory essentially from the Mediterranean over to India. Verse 6. 
After some years, they, and they in this case refers to Ptolemy II, called Philadelphus, and he ruled from 285 to 246, and Antiochus II, who is the son of Seleucus I, and his name is Theos, and he ruled from 261 to 246. So again, verse 6. After some years they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, and her name is Bernice, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So what happens is Ptolemy and Antiochus II make a treaty. And to seal the treaty, Ptolemy sends his daughter, Bernice, to marry Antiochus II. Now there's a problem with that because Antiochus had married a gal named Laodice. So when he married Laodice, he gave her the city of Laodicea. That remained its name ever thereafter. So she was just naturally chapped when, for state reasons, Antiochus II had to divorce her and marry Bernice. So what she did is she kills Bernice. That's why I say this is a soap opera. So she kills Bernice. And I think Bernice had a child who was also killed and puts her son into power. And her son is Ptolemy III, and he's called Ergetes, and he rules from 246 to 221. So let me back up now and read it so it perhaps sort of flows. So verse 6 again. After some years, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. In other words, she's going to be poisoned, killed. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants who fathered her, and he who supported her in these times. So she is given up, which is to say she's killed by Laodice, who was... Seleucus's first wife and is then reinstalled and installs her son, Seleucus II, to be king of the north. You all got that clear? Now, Ptolemy III, who is Ptolemy II's son and the brother of Bernice, is chapped over this. Now we're all the way down to verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. This is Ptolemy III. So the branch from her roots, her is Bernice. So her roots are Ptolemy. Now she came out of the Ptolemies. So a branch from her root is her brother, who is Ptolemy III. And he is called Euergetes, and he rules from 246 to 221. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And that is now Seleucus II, Callinicus, from 246 to 227, and he is the son of Laodice. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So he is naturally annoyed with how his sister has been treated. 
that she'd been murdered after all. So he goes up and takes revenge and loots the place and then goes back down. Verse 9, then the latter, the latter being Seleucus II, Calnicus, who is the son of Laodice, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So he tries to counterattack, but is not successful. Verse 10, his sons, and he is Seleucus II, his sons are Seleucus III, Seronus, and Antiochus III. So Seleucus III, Seronus, rules from 225 to 223, two years is all he lasts. Antiochus III is called Antiochus the Great, and he rules from 223 to 187, and he is an extremely able commander. He's serious stuff. So, verse 10 now. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and shall overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So he will go down and conquer Egypt. Now, Seleucus III and Antiochus III go in different directions. Antiochus III goes south to Egypt. Seleucus III goes east. They're not teamed up. And Seleucus III, I think, is thrown off his horse and dies. So then Antiochus III, who is the younger brother, and is 18 years old when he ascends to the throne, assumes rulership of the whole Seleucid Empire. Anyway, Antiochus goes south and prevails. Verse 11, then the king of the south, this is Ptolemy IV, Philopater. He reigns from 221 to 204. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north, Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. In other words, he is going to raise a big army and try and go north, but he's not going to succeed. Verse 12, and when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. All right, so what happens then is Ptolemy IV, Ptolemy Philopater, raises an army, goes north, has some initial success, backs Antiochus the Great up. Antiochus the Great disengages, backs up, goes off and raises another army and comes back down and takes out Ptolemy IV all the way down to 14. In these times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So what's going to happen is, as Antiochus III is successful, Hellenized Jews are going to join up with him, fighting against the Egyptians in the hope of regaining sovereignty over their own land. They are, in fact, not going to succeed. He isn't going to give it to them, even though he is going to be militarily victorious. And by the way, that's one of the things that got the current state of Israel reborn. 
the Jews sided with the British and one of the conditions of that was that the British would give them Palestine. Now, you all know why the sun never sets on the British Empire. You can't trust them in the dark. God doesn't trust them in the dark. The Brits were less than forthcoming. But anyway, the idea of Jews allying themselves with a foreign empire in order to regain sovereignty over their own land has a long and illustrious history. And it doesn't work. The empire is very happy to have their help, but somehow it just doesn't come through. All the way down to verse 15. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. This is probably Sidon on the Mediterranean coast of Lebanon. Antiochus the Great did take Sidon, and it was a fortified city. So in the commentary I read surmises that the fortified city here was Sidon. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. This is still Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Third. This guy is competent. He's a good military commander, and he is the most potent and successful of the Seleucid kings from a military perspective. I'm now down to verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him, and him now is Ptolemy the fifth, Epiphanes, who rules from 203 to 181. Let me read the sentence again now, verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. All right, the daughter of women here is Cleopatra I. This is not the same Cleopatra that wrecks Mark Anthony. She, I believe, is Cleopatra IV or the fifth. This is the original Cleopatra. So what we have is Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, sits down to make a treaty with Ptolemy V. Antiochus the Great gives to Ptolemy V his daughter, Cleopatra, as a wife, to cement the treaty. In fact, both of them had treachery in their hearts, and the treaty does not stand. And it says, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. I've told you one of these internet memes, every girl wants to be treated like a princess. Well, this is how princesses are treated. I need to make a treaty with the Egyptians. You're going to go marry the Egyptian king. That's how princesses are treated. And you got to take the bad with the good, you know. I think that the girls who want to be treated like princesses don't read their history very well. So now we're all the way down to verse 18, maybe. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. He again is Antiochus III. So afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. The commander there is Cornelius Scipio. And Cornelius Scipio is a Roman general. And Rome says, no, 
you're not advancing any farther to the west. Back up again, 18 now. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. And then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So what happens is Rome says no, Antiochus III dies and is replaced by his son, Seleucus IV, called Philopater, verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one, this is Seleucus IV, Philopater, 187 to 176, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So what's going on is Seleucus IV is paying tribute to Rome. So he has to send tax collectors throughout his kingdom to rustle up enough money to pay the tribute that he owes to Rome. That was the bit with the commander earlier, Cornelius Scipio. So he rustles up a tax collector and at the end of the day, his treasurer, who is Heliodorus, points his noob and kills it. 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. And this is Antiochus IV, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he reigns from 175 to 163, 12 years. He shall come in without warning and shall obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Antiochus IV is not the next one in line to be king. He is in fact a hostage to Rome. And what he does while he's a hostage in Rome is he finagles and gets himself named king, acing out his brother. So when it says here, he comes without warning to obtain the kingdom by flatteries and to whom royal majesty has not been given, we're saying that he is a pretender. He is not the legitimate heir to the throne. 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant, this is the high priest. He replaces high priest Onanias the third. 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. The commentary I read speculated that he's a minority king. So the way he gets people on his side is he distributes welfare. Says it here, without warning he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. So the way he gets loyal is he scatters among influential people plunder, spoils, and goods. So he's buying political support. Come back up to 24 and a half. So scattering among them plunder, spoils, and goods, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south. The king of the south now is Ptolemy the sixth. We're already up to six. Ptolemy the sixth, Philometer. He reigns from 181 to 145. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. 
And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. In other words, he has a palace coup. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. In other words, Antiochus IV and Ptolemy VI sit down to make a treaty. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. They're trying to make a peace treaty, but neither one of them is being honest or straightforward, sort of like dealing with the Palestinians. 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So this is not yet the Maccabean revolt that comes next. So he goes down, makes a treaty, prevails, but he's got deceit in his heart, and he's going to try it again. So 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come to the south. So he turns around and comes back. But it shall not be this time as it was before. The first time he went down, he did pretty well. Forced Ptolemy VI to make a treaty, never intending to keep it, reloading, if you will, and comes down again. So at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Ships of Kittim, Rome, the Roman commander meets him and says, if you go any farther, Rome's going to attack you. And he says, well, let me think about it. And the Roman commander draws a circle around him in the sand. And he says, you'll decide before you leave the circle. So at that point, he decides not to go south and decides to retreat, but he is ticked. He can't do anything about Rome because Rome's too big. So he turns his fury on Israel. And this now starts off all of the events that are written of in the Maccabees. This is where the book of the Maccabees starts. As Antiochus is humiliated, he is furious, and He's taking it out on Israel. So, read it again, 30. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So what he's going to do is he is going to enlist Hellenistic Jews in aid of what he wants to do. And just like today, you got secular Jews and you got religious Jews. And the two of them don't like each other, quite frankly. So what happens is he enlists the Hellenistic Jews or the secular Jews and has them turn on the fundamentalists. You know, it's liberals and fundamentalists, you know, liberals and Christians, liberal Jews and Hasidic Jews, you know, I mean it's liberalism versus following God in whatever understanding of God that you have, whether it's Christian or Jewish. So they conspire with him to suppress religious Judaism. Okay, and you've all read the book of the Maccabees, and I don't need to go through all the details. I don't have time anyway. But that's what's going on. Verse 31. 
forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So you have secular Jews who are seduced by power and seduced by a lack of religious standards. Hostility to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's that kind of thing. 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive little help, and they shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So what we're talking about here is the Maccabean Rebellion, where it starts off as a small minority. You all know the story. They come down to uh, Moedin, where John Hyrcanus, who is a priest, is. And they say, all right, we want you to sacrifice this pig, because if you do it, then everybody else in town will follow. And John Hyrcanus says, you and the horse you rode in on, spears the commander of the Syrian detachment. They slay all the Syrians and run to the hills. For a while they are a small band of outlaws, but gradually people rally to their side and they do in fact drive the Syrians out of Israel for a time. At this point we're going to shift gears. Notice it says, verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made whole until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Some commentaries say, all right, now what we're doing is we're shifting from the events of the Maccabees to the events of the end time. We have a time shift now, and what up until now has been historical, from now forward is prophecy. Well, even this is prophecy, but it's prophecy that has been fulfilled historically. Because there's stuff here that Antiochus doesn't do. And you have this, it awaits the appointed time, indicates that this is yet future. I'm going to stop here, by the way. I was hoping to finish Daniel tonight, but we're going to stop at verse 36. Because now what we're doing is getting into end times. And so now we're going to shift and we're going to need to cross-correlate with Revelation. We're going to need to cross-correlate with Matthew 24. So it's just too much to try and do in 10 minutes. And as I said, I have got all of this put into a Word document with the names of the kings in Scripture. If anybody wants that document, I would be delighted to email it to you. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an extra... of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.